Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Susie Boyd. Susie is the author of six acclaimed novels and the much-loved memoir My Judy Garland Life, which was shortlisted for the Penn Ackerley Prize, staged at the Nottingham Playhouse and serialised on BBC Radio 4. She writes columns and reviews for a variety of publications and has recently edited The Turn of the Screw and Other Ghost Stories by Henry James. She's also a director at the Hampstead Theatre. Her new novel, Loved and Missed, has just been published by Virago. Welcome to our show, Susie. It's such a joy to have you here today. Thank you. Uh, before we go on to the main questions, I'd love to talk a little bit about um, your new novel, the beautifully written and incredibly movingly told Loved and Missed. Um, so for any readers who haven't had the chance to read it yet because it's just come out, could you give them a little taster of the story, please? Well, it's about a youngish grandmother in her mid-50s who goes to the christening of her much-loved granddaughter and pretty much buys the baby from her reckless daughter, figuring that the baby will be better off with her and may solve some of her own problems in a, in a funny sort of way. She's very estranged from her daughter, which causes her a lot of pain. They almost have a relation that's like a sort of um, unrequited love between them. And it's possible she also thinks having the baby will sort of bind her daughter closer to her as well, or that she might get two for the price of one in some way. Um, the baby is pretty spectacular and, and a tremendous friendship develops between them. Um, I wanted to, obviously, um, parenthood is is n not an easy business in in any way, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the um, sheer delight babies can bring when it's going well and there's a lot of that possibly felt even more strongly between grandparents and babies so then the book is the uh, really the next 15 years in all of their lives the the mother the daughter and the granddaughter and um, the ways they're tied to each other and the ways they're not and um, the kind of um, triumphs and disaster of that time it's so wonderful, I thought, to read a novel about a really close relationship between a granddaughter and a grandmother. I feel that grandmothers are sort of sorely underrepresented in fiction in many ways. And you have this beautiful relationship. And obviously, you know, it's not without its, um, or each character is not without their flaws, let's put it that way, as is everyone in real life. Sure. But this beautiful story about a, grand a grandmother's love for her granddaughter but also her daughter in the process mm. and then by the end of the story and I don't want to give anything away here um but you sort of then see it slightly from the other side the granddaughter's love for her grandmother and for her mother mm. and you I thought you did that so well I'm so impressed by the sort of balance you managed to strike between these three characters and not ever making no one became a sort of caricature of of uh you know, the, the kind of easy, you didn't take the easy way out with any of them. There, it's a complicated relationship, but you were able to show them all in such kind of, I don't know, authenticity, but also with such love, I thought, while you, you know, the writing. Thank you. I wanted to be really respectful to all the characters and to feel that um, they are all quite flawed. Interestingly enough, um, people respond to it 
most people sort of love and admire the courage of the central character, but some people find what she's done to be quite morally suspect. And it feels mm. like um, it has a similar effect on people as that situation in real life would have. That, yes. um, And I see sort of tremendous... Um, I mean, second chances is a big theme in the book that if you've messed up with your child and you were an incredible grandparent to their child, mm. you'd be doing something really kind for the person you'd made the mistake with. And the, the the difficult child might feel that she could make amends to the mother by solving her loneliness, by letting her have the granddaughter. So everything's all very compl- complicated contractually in a way. I was reading... Um, uh, a wonderful book about Alice Neal. I think it's the catalogue to the exhibition she's got at the Metropolitan Museum of Life of, of Art at the moment, and it's called People Come First. And she talked mm. about um, one of her aims really being to assert the dignity of humans. And I felt that I was really trying to do that in this book. The the daughter is a sort of um, she's reckless and she's um, got a drug problem it's a bit unclear quite how terrible it is and she's not Mm. interested in motherhood really Um, but I didn't want to in any way trash her I wanted to make it seem that there'd be a whole nother book if we asked what had gone on from her point of view and this book knows that and all the characters even slightly know that the daughter says towards the end she might be a brilliant mother motherhood had never really given her a chance like she says I might Mm. be great at driving but I've never had a lesson who's to say and you think what that's a bit of nonsense but there's a tiny bit of truth in it that that um everyone I guess everyone's trying to think the best of everyone as much as possible and and yeah well it made me think as well while I read it I kept thinking of um there's a really fascinating bit towards the end of your memoir my Judy Garland life which I think we'll probably end up um talking about a bit later in the show but you explain that as a novelist you say you can't ever be needlessly cruel to your characters and that you sort of have to show them a degree of compassion while you're writing i found that really fascinating i don't think i'd ever heard an author speak of it like that but it made it made so much sense to me while reading loved and missed because that's what i felt was at the heart of the novel it seems to me it's a story about compassion it's a story about trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes and trying to understand where they come from even if what they're doing is causing you pain is causing you anguish and is is not what you yourself might do in that situation It, it seems to be a book about compassion yes i think it is partly and and um and how difficult that is to live day to day and Mm. and also I wanted to write a book about people living in fairly intolerable circumstances but um, making the best of it and and day to day and that I think finishing it in lockdown when our lives had all madly narrowed there was a sort of correspondence between that and I mean I suppose lots of lots of us live lives with a sort of chronic pain whether that will be a very ill relative or a terrible estrangement or uh, physical pain of our own and and the sense of um certainly in addiction circles there's a lot of talk of tough love and cutting mm-hmm. things off very um sharply which certainly can work in some situations i'm not against that but i wanted to think what are the alternatives to that and and um for a mother to to cut like that with her firstborn you know if the person then does die then you know what's what's that life going to look like at the end of it or that that um that I suppose all these situations are very sort of case specific and that having some big rolled out rule that works for all difficult teenagers all addicts or you know that that seemed not to make a lot of sense to me mm. I think I was also struck by how little anger there was in the book and again really fascinatingly that actually there were circumstances here that would have made different characters or different people under different circumstances very angry, very bitter, very um, upset. And yet none of these characters seem to give in to that. But then I started thinking that I wonder if if loving someone through these sort of very trying times almost seems like the harder option, perhaps. Like giving in to anger is almost too easy, but but sort of putting yourself out there. There are flashes of anger now and then, aren't there, where... Um, Ruth, the, the grandmother character, just at one point she's in 
it's hard to talk about it without giving funds yeah. away, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I, I guess I meant she never sort of gives into it, though. There are never long. It never sort of overwhelms her in a way that I wor- I sort of worry that if I was in that situation, I would not have the patience to be as generous and as compassionate that I would just give in to bitterness and rage the whole time. Well, I'd, I'd like to think you wouldn't, Lucy. But, <laughs> but I guess um, I guess Ruth knows she's at fault as well and that, that those feelings might just as easily apply to her, her own take on herself in a way. So I suppose she's, I mean, there's a hell of a lot of what's going on that obviously isn't in the book. And um, there's a lot of talk of, you know, having difficult thoughts and feelings in the middle of the night. And, and she's quite she sort of stages aspects of her character and her coping mechanisms to herself, doesn't she? As we all do when we're um, trying to sort of legislate about matters of the heart, which can't really be done. Mm. Um, But but, um, yeah, I suppose um, it's one of those situations in life, I think, that seem to come round more and more where no one's going to get anywhere by thinking who's in the right and who's in the wrong that mm. you might be in the right, but you might lose everything in the in the in the getting there. And that you sort of have to go a bit deeper than that. You have to think about what do we want and what's a possible way of getting there. And and if what we want isn't possible, you've got to think of the less the least sort of costly way of treading water till it might be a bit more possible. I mean there's there's quite a lot of um getting through difficult days and, and that sort of thing. But 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 um and you feel that Ruth's life was a lot more difficult before her granddaughter came into it. And that sort of mm. hinted at that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe as well, because it's so tempered by, as you spoke about earlier, the the sort of sheer joy and happiness of the relationship between the granddaughter and the grandmother for a lot of the book. There's so much joy and you write so beautifully about such ordinary kind of day to day activities that these two do together and the little the sort of little fortress they have against the rest of the world in many it, it feels like they are they are their own little ecosystem and they are propping each other up in, in a really wonderful joyful sense yeah and you could say that it's a, a kind of a, a wonderful creative act they pull off together and someone very psychologically minded would say is this healthy you know and that, <laughs> that, that's, that's in the air as well and 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 she says that when her daughter was little that they were incredibly close and they everyone always seems to sleep in the same bed as everyone else and that that um you know and you have lots of little nods back to things that the grandmother does with the granddaughter she mentions having done these with the granddaughter's mother and so there's a sense of a lineage and a and a and obviously with her there's a sense of maybe a, a do-over right she's doing it kind of in order to try and make it right this time round to a certain degree Yes, and she she does try and put in the odd good word for her daughter as well, and say, yeah, know, that when she was when she was reading a book, she'd hold it right up in front of her head like someone reading a book in an oil painting kind of thing. Or she she's she's she, um, she's in a rather um, lim- limited and derailed way. She's tr- she's tr- she's trying to um, keep everyone's dignity for them, whilst realizing mm. it can't quite be done there's so much here I could go on asking you about this uh this novel all day but I I need to move on to our other questions I'm afraid but hopefully that will give um any listeners who hadn't had a chance to read it yet do go out and and buy a copy it's a beautiful beautiful book right well next up I want to ask you a bit about the books that you've been reading recently so you're going to tell me about two books that are currently on your uh, bedside table what are these yes well I I had um the notebooks of Helen Garner, who's an Australian novelist I really admire, um, and also Washington Square by Henry James, which is a bit of an old faithful, but I, I just, I don't even know how it got there, but I, I uh, in fact, finished that today. I, I've, I've read it many times, but I um, I just sort of couldn't stop. And Perfect. Uh, and um, yeah, Henry James has been a, a big figure in my life, really. He mm been reading him since teenage and in a lot of ways he really explained my life to me and still continues to do so I I I um was quite aware growing up that I was in a world that was more worldly than than I was going to be comfortable in and um the sense you have in his books of heroines feeling how can they live fully in the world without taking on the sort of tarnish that the word worldly carries um, mm. that, that's sort of been a theme in my in all my books in a way and um and also his sort of commitment to trying to 
show the complete landscape of human consciousness that that's sort of endlessly fascinating to me yeah no you say that um so washington square is something you've read before presumably Mm. it's it's an Mm. old favorite does it come back to you are there particular things that you get out of rereading it does it do you find new things in it afresh or is it the comfort of knowing of being overly familiar with the story well it was really really different that time in ways that books can be and you sort of probably because you've changed but you tiny bit of you think so someone come on done a big edit on this new yes. book and it's actually <laughs> the same one I've had since I was 15 so that obviously hasn't happened um I'm very interested in things to do with friendship and things to do with grief and I wondered if when I'd read the book before I hadn't noticed quite what a big part grief had played and that of course the mm. doctor at the beginning um has lost his wife and his oldest son as a as a as a child all before I mean, the the wife dies in childbirth. And so I'd never really read the book with such a strong sense of the missing mother character and the daughter growing up without a mother. And all that means that, you know, obviously, if you're born, if your mother dies when you're a baby or a child, she's not just not there then. She's not there for every moment of your whole life, for your first day at school, for if you had a baby or got married or just sort of every part of life you go through would always be not quite right because of that. And um, and I was also thinking that the the father in the book is absolutely horrible. And <laughs> he was even worse this time. I mean, he'd sort of, it did seem bleaker, even though it's a sort of, people say that Henry James are comedies are often way more haunting than any other books that he writes, but not, um, but, but he's, the father is so, um, he sort of decides that she's unlovable from birth and whether that's a very extreme reaction to your wife dying in childbirth and that maybe there's some kind of psychic blame that he, he sort of puts on her or it's, I was thinking it really, it made me laugh in a way because the world I live in, um, it's completely taken for granted that a child's happiness is much more important than a parent's happiness. And there's a kind of, um, parenting fad I think I'll call it which for children home is a safe place to be your worst self and quite a lot of children of my parish I'll say um, (laughs) seem to have sort of decided that that's the kind of childhood they're having and and so this other idea whether the father because he decides very on that she's not clever and she's not beautiful he just can't really see any point to her at all and um she she get this time I read the book she gets bigger and and stronger and clearer and at one point the narrator who's who who sort of often feels quite ashamed of his characters he says I feel I should write this very small before sort of insulting her um, he says that she was the softest creature in the world and that that suddenly seemed so endearing and and um, I don't know and then and then the things that the father despises about her initially that she sort of she likes sweeties and she's quite sort of um, rough and tumble. It's basically mm. that she's a child and that, yeah. that's, he, he finds that unforgivable. And I thought I connected him today to the father in The Wings of the Dove, who's the first chapter oh. of, of The Wings of the Dove is a, a, one of my favourite pieces of writing. Um, and that father, as it says, um, because he's being viewed by his daughter, who is incredibly clever, she says... Um, there was never a mistake for you that he failed to make. And then um, she she says that um, he demanded such a great deal of satisfaction for one who gave so little or something, not exactly put much better than that. But I I sort of saw him in that trajectory of Henry James withholding father types. I felt sort of proud of, uh, of Catherine Sloper this time reading it, that it's incredibly brave of her to defy him um, because he's, he's sort of her everything and then and then the real tragedy of the book is that she she comes to realize that he doesn't really care about her he certainly doesn't love her doesn't particularly like her and all to prove a point and to for him to have the pleasure of being in the right and in a way she's provided him with um mid to late life sport by letting him sort of totally interfere and try and mess up her love life so yeah yeah there's such a cruelty there that i find hard to hard to stomach i don't know what makes it I almost have a visceral response to his the level of his cruelty it seems to me that it's because I think of the way that it sort of creeps up and perhaps coming out slowly through the book 
you know, it, it's not so obvious. He doesn't, you know, he's not hitting her in one scene. It's not horrific like that. It's just a slow creep of, and then you realize that her entire life has been bent by his um, sort of iron will. It's horrible. Yeah. And the, sometimes the cruelty strikes, quite, seems to strike quite casually in the way that sort of um, very young people can be cruel without even realizing it. But then, then it says at one point he wouldn't, he'd have been surprised if you pointed out, but he'd never said anything to her at all that wasn't ironic. So, I find the particularly painful how critical he is of her appearance and she comes down in her kind of new dress and he says, goodness, can this magnificent creature be my child? And and she doesn't know what to do with that and she knows he doesn't mean it, but she, yeah, that's, 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 that's tough. I'm always fascinated as well by these sort of novels that one reads at different points in one's life and has a different response to them each time because I feel that on one hand, you're completely right. It's very much about where the reader is in their life and maybe what's certain what's what's playing on their mind at that moment so like you say you're more interested maybe perhaps in in grief and the way that it plays a role in the novel but I also feel that there needs to be a sort of intelligence in the writing that enables it to be kind of opened up in those multiple ways and James strikes me as somebody who who writes perfectly for that that you can read him on so many different occasions and, and get something new from it each time. Yes, and he 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 wasn't wild about this book. He called it poorish. And when he did the New York edition later in life, he didn't include it. Um, so I don't think I knew that. How fascinating! We, we could make of that what we will. Um, I think possibly you could argue that the book was a bit nasty-hearted, and he he he, you know, he maybe he felt things in accordance with that. Tell me about Helen Garner, because I'm very interested in her. She's a writer who I must admit I have never read, but I feel that I am suddenly hearing quite a lot of people mentioning her name and recommending her work at the moment. So tell me a bit about these diaries and, and, and what does she what do you what do you like about her work? Well, I first came to her, um, like many people probably in the UK, through her novel The Spare Room, which is about um a, a woman possibly even called Helen, who has her best friend come to stay, who's been diagnosed with cancer, who's quite late on in her treatment, who's kind of prepared to try absolutely anything, including things that the the main character knows couldn't possibly in a million years work. And she's decided to completely indulge her to just be as good a friend to her as possible. And what was so powerful about this book, which actually did quite a lot influence Loved and Missed, is that as you read, you're really, really living with them. You feel like you're their third friend who's in the next bedroom and, and mm. uh, at the other end of the table. And you you go through absolutely everything they go through so that you don't feel like you're reading a book. You're, you're, you're helping your two friends manage this cancer situation. You're living out the days with them. You're changing their sheets three times in the night to the point of exhaustion. You're, you're, rooting for them whilst knowing all hope is gone kind of thing and and um I was so impressed by that and it's so lively as well and um it has a sort of conversational tone whilst being very deep about suffering and and preparation for suffering and um so when I saw the her diaries it was funny because I've been I've been writing a lot of things about friendship lately and I sort of turned to her diaries in the absence of having nice friends to sit around talking about books with. And in a way, I felt quite sort of comradely towards her. And in the first, there's two volumes of diaries at the moment. And in the first one, she's at the kind of late stages of a painful marriage. And um, the diaries are like diaries and that they, they kind of veer between quite banal, silly, jokey things and very, very profound things that she's realising about the world and little snippets of stuff she's read that she's finding stimulating and um, strong love for her daughter and, and funny overhearings. And so it was like having a, a a very, very good chat with your most intelligent of friends kind of thing. And so, so I, I, I found it so sustaining and, and delightful and sometimes sad it's quite hard to know what's going on um, now and then because she calls people by their initial and you can't remember if it's, oh, is he, is that the one who wasn't very right. nice this time or that kind of thing. But um, And then the second volume, the, she's now having an affair with a married man, which she realises is not a very sort of original sort of stance. But she's trying <laughs> just trying to do it with a bit of style. And, uh, and um, just the, I mean, the, I'll give you an example of funny asides, like, 
she's at some dinner and someone's talking about their sister who's a a, a dancer in Europe and she's um incredibly glamorous and has a sort of magnificent appearance but she can't walk because she's her body has sort of developed all these strange muscles from the dancing and oh, and that they tried to go on a walk to the local library and she couldn't do it and someone at the dinner says well I'd much rather be able to do the can-can than walk anyway and that's, <laughs> that's very charming um and there's a, another bit where she's got this friend who's who's a sort of rather outspoken nun and she said you know you know what happened with Jesus don't you the thing is that he was just so so sexy probably like the sexiest man who ever ever lived they just had to get rid of him and she so charming the idea of her just sort of noting these things down or she's got a great eye for sort of nature and she just just tiny little details that are so telling like she goes to sleep with a postcard on her bedside table and when she wakes up it's got a slight curve and she just notices absolutely everything so she's sort of got a, a sort of surfeit of consciousness but it's it's um yeah nothing is lost on her at all and and, and she's they very, sound delightful yeah they are they're, they're quite I'm probably making them sound a bit sweeter than they are they're quite caustic at times but okay um it's yeah I, I'd be surprised if you didn't like it and it's a highly definable tune and and we're still so only about early nineties, so there's tons more to more to come. And um, and could one read them if they hadn't read any of her fiction? Do you think they'd be definitely. a good place to start? Yeah, definitely. Okay. They're, they're, they're easy to read in a way because they're they're, they're sort of flashes of inspiration. Um, so mm. you know, I'm not on Instagram, but I imagine it's a tiny bit like that where you see something and think, "Wow!" And you know, it's a bit right. like that. You can, oh, that yeah. sounds perfect. And also, I think that that's such a lovely idea. The idea, you know, when you might not be able to be spending as much time with people as we like, if it feels like an old friend, if you're picking up a book and it feels like somebody's talking to you and you're getting to kind of see inside their mind, there's a real pleasure to that, right? Definitely. And also, when she talks about the way she looks at things, it sort of makes you think, oh, I wonder if I look at things like that. Or mm-hmm. at one point, she's read a book review that she thinks is good, and the person in the book review says, maybe it's true as. I think Robert Musil says that a, a a really good thought is actually a subtle feeling. And then you think, hmm, and you sort of audition various good thoughts you've had and think, actually, right. were they subtle feelings? And then you think, I don't actually know. <laughs> it's just sort of, it, it's, uh, and it really makes you want to keep a diary as well. I kept nearly doing it, but I can't imagine, yeah, I, I can't imagine sort of, I can't imagine how to keep it secret somehow. So that that floored me. I didn't want it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just it just seems so stagey writing in a book and sort of hoping no one's ever going to see it. Or um, at one point in this yeah. book, she talks about to a friend about wanting to burn her diaries, and the friend says, sort of rather stagely, "You can still burn them, but all those things will have still have happened." You know. <laughs> yes, I think I read somewhere. Did I think she did burn some of her early diaries? Didn't yes, she? The she ones did. before yeah. this. Um, yeah. Which itself is quite a, a, an impressive thing to do to just say, well, I'm not, let's get rid of those and let's start afresh here. You know, these are the ones I want out in the world. Yeah. Um, they sound brilliant. Okay, I'm going to definitely be ordering a copy of those to yeah, read very it. soon. Brilliant. Um, next up, can I ask you about a recent, I think you're going to tell us about a podcast that you've been uh, listening to that's made you think about something or other in particular? Oh, yes. Um, I've been listening to um, the London View of Book podcast. In a similar way, in lo- in lockdown, really desperate for friends and stimulation, <laughs> I, I um, it was very odd because I started strongly missing being at university, sitting around with a um, what did I used to drink? Oh yes, I used to drink Jameson's, and I used to have spicy chicken McCoys. That was my sort of evening meal of choice, <laughs> and, I, and I felt incredibly nostalgic for that time, which is probably the mid nineties. And that we used to sit around talking a lot about poetry, particularly. Um, Keats Hardy Larkin sort of access and and then when I found the London View of Books podcast with um, very similar conversations some of which by the actual same people that I used to talk to then which made me think are they still propping up the bar Um, (laughs) that that, that was really really um, really sustaining as well and I remember that I don't know it felt you know, when you look back and nothing's ever the same, well, everything was really the same. And I remember in that Hardy poem, The Voice, there, there was a, a, you know, highly controversial change of, um, he says, uh, he changed lost in existlessness to lost in one one wistlessness. And I remember in, in 
1993 or whenever it was, we all thought this was a mistake. And it was funny that they were discussing now whether it was a mistake or not. And I thought, but didn't we decide that already? And and then, then there was talk of, um, you know, sort of it being a bit rich of Hardy to constantly be writing poems about how much he missed his first wife, who he'd completely tormented, thus um, making his life, his present wife, pretty hard hard to live and thinking sort of, who does that? And yeah, it was, it was, it was, I started walking sort of a a bit uh, maniacally in the, in the lockdown. I got up to sort of doing 50 miles a week. And so I, 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 I used to walk in the park and then I think, oh no, there's my bloody favourite tree again. And so then I started <laughs> walking on the streets and, and listening to walking in the streets and listening to talk, people talking about Keats and Hardy and Larkin just sort of, it did feel a bit sublime. So I, I was very, very grateful to it. Did you bring a little hip flask of Jameson's along to complete the the feeling of the nostalgic feeling? No, I should have done, but I thought that might have <laughs> rendered me a bit tragic. <laughs> I don't know. Some of the things we all did during lockdown render us all tragic. I yeah, think. No, that sounds, right, that sounds right. rather delightful, to be it honest. It was. It um, was. I, I felt I had to allow myself because I could see it was a behaviour that could be classed as a bit corny. But I, I just, it was. It did really cheer me up. Arshal's be back in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Susie Boyd about walking the streets during lockdown, listening to podcasts, uh, but not with a hip flask full of uh, whiskey. <laughs> so next up, Susie, could you tell me about a book? We've asked you about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way. I think you're going to tell us about a play, which is our first play on Our Shelves. So take it away. Yes, the play uh, is available in a book, so I think it just about still counts as a book. Um, Absolutely. Yes, well, as I was saying, I've been thinking a lot about friendship and how 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 it can best be practised. And um, the, the the play I thought of, the book, uh, is called Die and Viv and Rose, and it's by Amelia Bullmore. I, mm. I, I had a very interesting experience with this play because I saw it when it was in the studio theatre at the Hampstead Theatre, where I'm a director, and then it came upstairs into the main theatre two years later and then it went into the West End two years later. So apart from anything else, it really educated me on what plays had to do in those different settings, which is something you could very easily never see. But So the play is about um, three friends who meet at university when they're 18 and then they share a house together uh, while they're at university. They, they then move into a house together and one of them's uh, very sporty and sort of down to earth and a lesbian one of them's um quite precious and severe and dressed a bit like someone out of the war and this is how they describe each other and one of them's um bohemian and um sort of boy crazy that's that's how they start they start out um and the thing that particularly struck me with relationship with relation to feminism was uh there's a very sad moment in the play where and a scene begins with someone calling uh, uh, the police to report a rape. Um, and after this is reported, the women who are all living together all completely stop what they're doing and they turn the sitting room of the house, they all drag their mattresses in and they fill the room with sort of cushions and they create a sort of camp or shelter um, very much with the understanding that... Um, 
die, Diane, the, the woman who has been raped, that her life is sort of changed forever now. And they all stop going to their lectures and doing seeing their friends and doing all the normal stuff they do. And they just stay there. They get into bed with her. And when she won't eat anything, they sort of post soup through her mouth and just sort of try and, um, that sounds a bit violent, with her permission, but they just try, mm. they just sort of, um, there's an acceptance that, not that it's happened to, the, to them all, but that that a huge event in someone's life needs to be honoured. There's no, I feel that there's such a sense now that anything that sort of goes against productivity in any way or um, there's, if something goes wrong, people are so desperate for everyone to get back to normal as soon as possible. And it was just this idea of taking time out of life to completely stop and just honour the horror of what had happened and try and create an extremely comforting and soothing environment for as long as it takes. I just, I found that so moving on the stage in all three of those different places and reading it again on the page mm. now, the way it's, there's hardly any stage descriptions in the whole play and that's the only time when there is, they talk about the building of the shelter and and I, I just, and later on in fact in the play, there is a conversation about friendship and how when you really love your friends, if something happens to them, it does happen to you a bit and you, you've, um, what can be done and and obviously in the middle of terrible things happening it's very very hard to find any creative energy to sort of make a ritual but they they did in the play and it often comes into my mind where when people I know are bereaved or there's some something very sad and difficult that happens um, thankfully it hasn't hardly ever been that but just 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 a sense of 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 um the women building a life to support each other in a in a soft and very profound way mm. it sounds like it had quite a quite a strong effect on you maybe think really made you think about how your your own friendships kind of relationships with women in your life and how and how that support system worked would i be am i reaching too far or no i think i mean it's funny because it, I just written something, an essay about friendship, and I said that um, teenagers are, are, are keen to drop everything for their friends, and often mm. that's because they don't have very much to drop. <laughs> and, and that's, that's so true. Which is, you know, doesn't make it any less meaningful, but it makes it more doable, I guess. Yeah. But I was thinking that with our with our nearest and dearest, or people we've we've known for a long time. Um, we do carry around little sort of museums to them with all the difficult things that have happened to them and all the lovely things as well. And that when you know someone really well, if you meet them, you're sort of bringing that all that to the picnic that, you know, what, what, what they've struggled with and, and, and what's gone well. And that's just a, sort of a part of your, your interaction. And that that's a, that's a powerful thing to have at your side and to be able to provide for someone else. Mm. Yeah, there's something also I think very. Um, I don't know. I've never seen the play, but the way you talk about it, that sense of them actually building a sort of physical camp-like space for them to all be together. Mm-hmm. There's something about certain uh, relationships, I think, with certain female friendships, where you have that that real sense of that the other person sort of contains you or holds you up in some way, like that actually they can be there for you and they they, they know what you need even maybe when you don't or when you don't want to vocalize it but just that sense of being in the room with somebody spending time with them uh like you say dropping everything just it I don't know it seems like a very it's a very intimate thing to do for somebody yeah I think and it's daring it's a bit untoward you're not meant to do that you're meant to you know you're meant to at least go to the lecture so that one of you can get the notes or not that they're doing the same subject but whatever the equivalent of that is fun what you saying that makes me think of a thing in the Helen Garner notebooks. I think it's the second volume where she's seeing a friend and she says her this particular friend all, always makes her feel like she's asking her to put down her big bundle of difficult things before her and and look at it and you know let let's sort this out together and that that wow. that, that aspect of friendship and and um, came through through very powerfully and I think yeah because it's quite rare to find that I mean those sorts of friendships are. That we we'd be lucky to all have one, right? Yeah, I I I, I obviously can't condone his later behaviour, but I always love that thing that Othello says about Desdemona that 
Um, she loved me for the dangers I had passed and I loved her that she did pity them. The idea that if you are someone's good friend, you need to have respect for the, the heroics their life has, has required and that, that um, you know, just just hold that in the back of your mind, really. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, Susie, um, could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire? And I think we can probably all guess who it's going to be. I was going to try and invent some whole other person, but I, I thought I'd just no, go for it. jump back on the Judy Garland wagon. <laughs> Um, please do please do I mean it seems almost a bit of a cruel ask to say to you sum up your love of Judy Garland right here when you've written a glorious and and, you know um, lengthy in a good way memoir about her so but what can you say about her here today well it's hard for me to talk about her without saying things that I haven't said before but I'm gonna try well I, I suppose initially I I sort of fell for her because of her strength of feeling I went to The Wizard of Oz when I was very small and it was the first film I saw in the cinema and it had also been the first film my mother saw in the cinema. And when, wow. I, when I heard her singing Over the Rainbow, I just, um, because I was a very sensitive child, I had sort of more feelings than I or indeed anyone knew what to do with and I was sort of <laughs> cut to the quick by, you know, someone eating the last apple or being asked to move up on the bus seat or anything like that. And so... so um, yeah, I wasn't as bad as the person I saw on the Oprah show once who cried every time she put the rubbish out because she was never going to see it again, but I was not <laughs> miles away. <laughs> and and um, if if you're that person, people continually tell you to toughen up that, you know, unless you get a control of your feelings, you're not going to have a happy life, which is a sort of severe thing to hear when you're five or six, whatever. But anyway, when I went to see The Wizard of Oz, I, I um, heard Dorothy singing over the rainbow and, and I felt finally here is someone whose feelings seem to run as high as my own and she's not afraid of it she's not embarrassed by it she's leading with it as if it having strong feelings might be the best thing a person could have and that 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 felt like a sort of wonderful smash of recognition permission indulgence um and and so it sort of started then and then I just saw all her films and found out more things about her of course once I realized that she'd found life very difficult then there was a Mm. lovely supporting supportive role for me and uh yeah but I guess it was the 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 sort of tremendous power of her strength of feeling and that the um if you read about the effect she had on her audiences that you know people talk about the her series of concerts at the Palace Theatre in New York people were just lying on the floor in the theatre and they had even forgotten their names they were so sort of knocked out by her and this um the way she could communicate pure unadulterated feeling it sort of mm. great beams of it and kind of um you know sort of providing consolation while seeking it and the, the whole sort of thing of that I found very very powerful I guess psychologically um she my mother was quite frail when I was growing up and I looked after her quite a lot. So she was a kind of much more extreme version of that. And also my father was com- um, very uh, absorbed by his work. So she was also a version. So she sort of all my things that all my weaknesses, all my buttons or whatever that, that, that she sort of sort of fed into all that. And then um, I was really obsessed with dance when I was little. I went to five dance classes a week and in all my dance classes we sang sort of songs about smiling through tears and how the gray skies were going to clear up and also that it had a whole sort of moral agenda of um life was going to be a bit unbearable but we certainly weren't going to show it so she fed into that as well and obviously she grew up and sang all those songs too so it was a it was one of those sort of connections on pretty much every single level of me I'd love to ask you just briefly a little bit about the genesis of of your memoir my judy garland life because when it was published in 2008 am i right in thinking that so it was a while while ago now Mm -hmm. but i kept thinking um have it rereading it in preparation for talking to you today i kept thinking about how contemporary it feels and that today we're very used to a lot of these kind of genre bending or genre blending books that people write about you know the rise of the biblio memoir is a good example of that of people writing about their great love for um, particular works of art and how they've sort of seen their life through this but it strikes me that when you were writing this there weren't a lot of 
examples of this kind of writing out there, it seems like you were sort of breaking new ground. And so when you sort of sat down to write it, think it through, what did you have anything particularly in mind? Did you just, this was the only way that you could write about yourself and her? Like, how did it sort of come into being? I'd love to know. Well, a very funny thing happened, which is I was shopping for boots in Liberties. I've never had boots and I don't, I think I'm obviously not a boot person. So I was trying them on in a very anxious sort of, what's all this about kind of way and a woman in the liberties came up to me and said oh you're Susie Voigt aren't you I really love your columns and your novels and things and I was a bit startled and I said what do you think of these boots and she said they're a little (laughs) she said they're a little bit I'm a fisherman just in from my trawler and I said (laughs) which was quite a rough thing to say but it made me trust her because it was so sort of funny and mad and so That's we then, quite intense. Yeah, yeah. so then we then started talking and she turned out to be a life coach, quite a oh. sort of successful one who'd written books and uh, and is, yeah, she's a rather amazing person. Anyway, she said, I, it would really mean a lot to me if you were more successful. And I said, would it? And she said, what would you do if you could do absolutely anything? And I thought thought for a second and completely off the top of my head, I said, I'd write a book about how much I love Judy Garland. <laughs> and she said, phone your agent tomorrow and tell her you've had a brilliant idea. And I did. Wow. I know. That's an astonishingly strange but kind of enticing story. Um, did you stay in touch with this woman afterwards? I feel like I did. I did. I did. And then then um, I, I think because one of the key things that I loved about Judy Garland was her um, actual or appearance of sincerity, I thought that I would need mm. to be very sincere as well. Um, in order for it not to sort of match her. And and then I had the, um, I'd sort of thought about taking key events from her life and key events from my life and using them to look at things I was interested in, like love and fame and, and hero worship and grief and addiction and uh, rescue. So, um, so it's, I think as I was making the proposal, it sort of came together that it wouldn't, it was never going to be a straight biography um, mm. partly because there wasn't really any new information. But I'm glad you, now I've remembered what I was actually going to say. Um, I, I was glad you said that it felt contemporary because a big thing on the on my agenda, and this has come back recently a bit with the uh, 10th anniversary of Amy Winehouse dying uh, early in, earlier in the month. Um, I feel strongly that with uh, artists who have had quite difficult lives particularly if they're female much is made of their difficulties at the expense of their achievements and I feel that's um a bit squalid and I feel that um with Judy Garland so many people are stimulated by what she got wrong what she couldn't do when she was in despair when she was trying to um, avoid life um, when she was struggling with her children with her marriages all that kind of thing and I feel it's a bit like with teenagers. People say that with a teenager, for every one critical thing you say, you've got to say five really um, praising things. And I, I felt a bit, when when I read things about her that just went on and on and on about all the misery and didn't say anything about the amazing mm. con- concerts at Carnegie Hall and the um, at the palace where the audience were described as bedlam superimposed upon bedlam just because they were so knocked out by her or the... Um, standing ovations given to her by the usherettes at the end of the night and all this kind of thing one time apparently an orchestra gave her a standing ovation in the middle of a song which is really quite hard to do you know just this sort of there she did affect people so powerfully in her even her early film performances where they're some of the films are sort of quite silly, like a, 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 there's one film uh, about a girl who works in a musical instrument shop who's got a pen pal. That is what the film's about. But the performance she gives goes so far beyond what anyone involved in the project could have possibly imagined in terms of wittiness and uh, poignancy and that sort of thing. So I suppose when I endlessly read all this stuff about X going wrong and Y going wrong, I just I wanted to there's one chapter in the book called the disillusionment stage where I sort of mess with some of that but I really wanted to I don't know why and maybe again it's a thing of naivety that if you're very respectful that it looks like you're 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 um not looking at the full picture but I felt you know it it was funny because there was a, a film review in the Guardian someone 
It was actually a, a review of a film based on what Henry James is, what Maisie knew. In a review of that in The Guardian, it described Julianne Moore being a veritable Judy Garland of self-loathing and um, something, something, something. And I wrote in the letter to The Guardian, just as you do, saying, um, um, you know, this is so cruel. Judy Garland was a uh, had a kind of over four decade international career of sort of supreme showmanship. She was a uh, a single mother. She was uh, one of the greatest entertainers of all time and a drug addict. Most of us could only do one of those things on a good day. <laughs> and I was so pleased when they ran it because it felt like it was so superfluous to, uh, uh, so gratuitous to just suddenly sort of lay into her. And, um, that was, yeah, that was... well, the, you definitely don't make, um, I think that I def- I'm not a Judy Garland super fan, but I do know a little bit about her life. Mm. And I must admit, reading um, reading your memoir, it was really refreshing to not have to kind of hash over again the sort of, you know, more of the squalid details, particularly towards the end, and to actually be reminded of all the pleasure and the joy and the pure sort of talent and kind of ability that this woman had and you know little things that you pick up on about you know things that her children said about how funny she was how wonderful she was to be around that she wasn't this kind of miserable person that we might some of us might like to think she was you know and also loads of people's mums are miserable aren't they it's hardly yeah. unusual <laughs> it's true it's so true making hundreds of millions of people happy with the wizard of oz and everything that came after yeah. it i mean that that's such a huge contribution i think as well that to me, it seems when when um, people hash and rehash and re-rehash someone's miseries, is a it's it's a it's a very straightforward way of denigrating them, and mm. I feel very uncomfortable with that, particularly with things to do with women and and even in something like the Amy Winehouse film, the the Oscar-winning one. Uh, anyone who knows anything about her story that I don't know that much about knows that the the effect that the paparazzi had on her was very, very damaging, yeah. the relentlessness of it. And yet any film that shows paparazzi footage would have to pay money for it to the people who took it. And I'm, 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 not, uncomfort- I'm not comfortable with that ethically. It just feels, you know, you could see how someone could justify it very fully. We have to show the whole bitch or whatever, but just giving money to people who are doing that, I, I, I think that's not all right. And there does seem to be a sort of a deep rooted sexism in it that um, a lot of men, men who are, um, you know, they're often the troubled genius, right, if they sort of fall into this category, but it's always their genius is always pushed to the fore. Whereas women like Judy Garland, it's always about the the so-called failures or the things that they didn't do right in their lives, rather than focusing on what they did do and what they kind of brought to the world. And even more so when a drink or, or, or drugs are involved, when, when, you know if it's a man it's sort of men will be men whereas if it's a woman it's right. um ultimate disgrace and no one ever says frank sinatra was he a good dad it's just nobody cares you know it's just so it, exactly it, are very different as i know that's a cliche to say but we all it does need to be said now and then no no you're right and i think bringing up the amy winehouse comparison is a is a really pertinent one and it is something that we need to remember so if people haven't read your memoir read it for the the joys of Judy's life and for the for a bigger picture than just the kind of tortured genius angle. Um, thank you so much, Susie. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for telling us about all your recommendations. Thank you. Thank you everyone else for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Susie Boyd, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. <laughs>